You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. And welcome to tonight's event with the incredible Titi Dangaremba. My name is Susanna Kalitza, and I'm the CEO here at the House of Literature. And I'm so honored to welcome Titi Dangaremba back to our stage. The last time she was here was in 2009, when we, together with Shimamanda Adichie, curated a week of African literature, and during which Adichie said that she wouldn't have been a writer if it hadn't been for Titi Dangaremba. Titi is a pioneer in so many ways. She's the first black woman in Zimbabwe to publish a novel in English, Nervous Conditions, in 1988. She was among the first, if not the first woman, to write plays in Zimbabwe. She has founded the International Images Film Festival and the Women's Film Festival of Harare. And in turn, through her writing, her filmmaking and activism, she has inspired countless others to follow her path. She is the winner of the Commonwealth's Writers' Prize, the Penn International Award for Freedom of Expression, the Norwegian Writers' Union's Freedom of Expression Prize, and Nervous Conditions have been named by the BBC as one of the top 100 books that have shaped the world. And finally, this novel is available in a new Norwegian translation by Merietta Alfsen. However, the position Titi has was hard fought as we can read in her recent essay collection, Black and Female, which is translated into Norwegian by Jørgen Eldøen. Being the pioneer, the first, is not an easy thing. You have to push and to claim a space that people around you are not necessarily ready to give. However, Dangaremba has kept fighting through it all. For 30 years, she has been quietly changing the world, Those are the words of her Ethiopian writer colleague, Maaza Megiste, who herself has been greatly inspired by Dangaremba's work when she turned to fiction to tell the story of her home country in her brilliant novels Beneath the Lion's Gaze and The Shadow King. So who better to talk with Dangaremba on stage, we thought. I am so happy now to give the stage to Titi Dangaremba and Maaza Megiste. Please give them both a warm welcome. Thank you all uh, for being here. Um, Tsitsi and I were talking in the back uh, that I think this is the first time we've met, but we've had conversations uh, since 2020, since we were uh, both on the on the Booker shortlist, and um, I have been such a fan and, and, and so invested in the work of Tsitsi that it took me a while this, this week to realize, wait, I haven't met her yet. <laughs> Now that's changed. Um, and it is such an honor to be talking to you, uh, Tsitsi. We're going to be talking about Black and Female, this book that is um, translated now in Norwegian um, 
And we'll also be talking a little bit about nervous conditions, which has also been translated. Um, I have... Uh, I don't know where to start. I'm, there's so much that has been happening uh, with this writing for me, um, the meaning of writing, what it means to be a writer in this world right now, what it means to wield your imagination like a weapon right now. Um, I'd like to open with um, a section that's very early in the book. And if you don't mind, Sitsi, I'll just go ahead and, and read it quickly, and, um, and then we can talk about it. I was struck in the, um, in the opening chapter, in the introduction, with something that uh, Tsitsi wrote towards the end. I have been in flight from the malign realm of the imaginary that constructed first colonial Rhodesia, then the Republic of Rhodesia and their successor, militarized elitist Zimbabwe for as long as I have existed, wherever my body has been situated. I do not know the destination of my symbolic migration and doubt that there is one given the current construction of global society. The following essays are a location in the invisible geography of my asylum. And I'd like to start there. Um, the malign realm of the imaginary that constructed first colonial Rhodesia, then the Republic of Rhodesia and their successor, militarized elitist Zimbabwe. With this... Um, Tsitsi, you do something that I, I, I found quite profound. Um, you move an essay about the effects of colonialism away from political structures and the physical realities and shift us immediately into a space that's outside of geography and, um, in a sense, outside of the physical realm, this imaginary. And... <clears throat> We, you begin by speaking of the imagination and these invisible geographies. Um, I've heard it said again and again that colonialism and colonialists lacked imagination. <laughs> and so Tsitsi in this very, very first um, part of this book is pushing against that. And I wondered if you could talk about this space a bit more and your decision to begin by speaking of this, this other geographical realm. Thank you so much for that question, Marza. Before I delve into that, or maybe I'm just buying time, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I would like to say thank you so much to the uh, Literature House for the invitation. Thank you, Susanna. I am really honored to be here. Thank you, Orsild, for everything that you have done to bring me here. And I'd like to thank my publisher, although I can't see you, Thomas, <laughs> uh, for the wonderful work that you've done on the two novels that are available outside. And to thank everybody here this evening. It's really wonderful to be here to share this conversation with you. And I also have a very special thank you to Maza, brilliant writer, who is so generous um, to give of her imagination and her creativity to uphold my work. Is that not a wonderful thing? <laughs> 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 Thank you. 
Yeah. yeah. I am really honoured and touched, and it's just so amazing that we finally meet <laughs> under these circumstances. Yes. So, when the imaginary is successful in manifesting itself, it becomes a norm. Mm. It becomes a given. And this is why it becomes so difficult to push back against it, because that means another imaginary has got to seed itself, has mm -hmm. got to nourish itself, has got to bear fruit, if you like, and be able to push back. So this world order that we have today is the result of somebody's imagination. Mm. And... In my reading, one of the points of departure, there, there are several. I mean, one can go back to the Enlightenment, one can go back to ancient Rome, one can go back as far as one likes. But I think one of the key points of departure for myself, for me, uh, somebody who was colonized by England, would be the beginning of the uh, British Empire. Mm. And my understanding of this is that this was begun by Mary Tudor after her father, Henry VIII, had bankrupted the country <laughs> <laughs> with his profligacy and wars and all sorts of things. And so she actually began this system of charter companies. And I think the first one was to, was to what was then called Persia. Mm. And it was basically to obtain income so that they could rebuild mm. England. Hmm. Uh, and so that was someone's imagination. You know, um, faced with a problem, a bankrupt country, and how do I solve this problem? There's no one in England who's going to give me any money. We've already ransacked the Catholic institutions and stolen all <laughs> their gold plates and sold all their monasteries and convents off to our supporters. Sounds a bit like Zanu-Pierre, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've already done all that. The, the French are against us. What are we going to do? Okay, so Persia is incredibly wealthy. So let's see what we can get out of them. <laughs> that, that's a whole thought process. Yeah. And uh, it was then manifested. And it became... Um, a question of identity, mm. where the English thought that they had the right to do that to the rest of the world and proceeded to do so. So I was born into that construct. And it was important for me to find a word to describe it. Mm. Because most of the... When, it, when it's like the air that you breathe, you know... Well, sometimes we might say the air is really fresh today, but normally we don't talk to each other about the air. We just breathe it, yeah. and it does its thing. And so the um, uh, cognitive constructs are like that too. We often don't talk about them. We take them for granted, and we behave as though they are a, a natural norm. Mm -hmm. It was important for me to name this construct that has resulted in the trajectory that my life has taken. Not only my life, but the life of many other people. Um, in Ethiopia, you never succumbed. 
<laughs> but we had our own complicated history. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but uh, we definitely did succumb in my part of the world. Not without resistance, mm -hmm. uh, but we did succumb. And the other aspect that I was interested in is what spaces are available to me. Mm -hmm. What spaces can I occupy symbolically with my imagination and also physically? Because colonization was an imagined reality that had physical consequences. When we think about apartheid, and we had a similar kind of apartheid in Zimbabwe where people could only live in certain areas. But I went even back further to think about, well, look at the divide between Africans now and African-Americans. But there, there is something common there mm -hmm. that has caused all this dislocation. And uh, so I like to name empire as empire. Mm -hmm. And... That basically is the malign force that I was talking about. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned. You just said, you know, this is the imagination made physical, and in that imagination, in creating empire, it also created us, the African. Um, and I was thinking about the place of writing in your life as that created being within this realm. Um, and I keep thinking of the images that you employ in the book, the guillotine, and then the pen. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could talk a bit more about the place of writing as you have worked through and maybe pushed against empire and this malign imagination. I, I really like that question because when I was a young woman, that was the time of independence having come to much of Africa. And it was the time when the idea of post-colonial studies, post-colonial thought was beginning to have some weight in discourse in academia. And I can remember this phrase about the empire rights back. And I thought to myself, how awful. I mean, why should I be writing back? I can't remember the exact, but why should I be writing back? Why can I not just be writing who I am? And so that was actually my goal. It was my intention with my writing. And then as I began to, to um, engage with this goal, that's where I found that it was almost impossible hmm. not to engage with empire because it has constructed the reality that I was representing in my literature. So for me, the question then became how to have a voice that describes my reality as a melanated embodied person that recognizes that there is this construct called empire that has formed me, but without giving it the power of being an absolute. Mm. So this is something that I am concerned with. And then we move from empire uh, in its various forms uh, from, let's say, uh, southern Rhodesia 
through to UDI, where Ian Smith declared um, unilateral independence from Great Britain, the war years to what we have now. Um, we, I see that the structures that were created have not been dismantled at all. So we have different iterations of the same basic structure. And all of those seem to me to be malign in the sense that they do not exist for the common good, or at least not the common good of the people in that physical realm, mm -hmm. that geographical realm. Maybe the common good of people elsewhere. And this is the case even today, where we have vast amounts of money being smuggled out of Zimbabwe on a monthly basis. Um, there, there was a documentary by Al Jazeera, a, an expose, four-part expose, about how gold is smuggled out of Zimbabwe. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And in fact, um, it was so damning that the authorities in Zimbabwe forbade uh, the journalists to even comment. And so one of our journalists actually just tweeted on social media and said, um, in the interest of my own safety, I will not be commenting on that anymore. And so it, there really has not been a change in structure. There has not been a change in the way this entity that I call empire operates. And so again, trying to account for this and to name it and to be able to talk about it, because it's very difficult for us in Zimbabwe. We talk about a government, and the very fact that you say government gives legitimacy and authority, and it implies that this entity should be obeyed. Mm -hmm. So... I was reading a book about the ANC and mm -hmm. how long they were in exile and how their structures were set up. And most of the liberation movements in my part of the world had the same trajectory, that people would go out into neighboring countries. They would have these camps where thousands, tens of thousands of people from the country would be. That's where they would start their training. But they would also have... Uh, other um, operations that are the operations that we we associate with the state. Uh, they would have their military wing, they would have their education, their health, uh, their logistics, their publicity, all of these things. And they also interacted with other states. And um, I was just speaking to Thomas as we, we came and he said, yes, uh, Zimbabwe was one of the countries that Norway was very supportive of um, several decades ago. <laughs> and so these people acted like states in exile. But they had a completely different culture to the people who remained at home. So they've been away for maybe 15 years, 20 years, and they have developed this guerrilla militarized culture. And then they return with this culture. And we are now two different peoples. So it's a kind of internal colonization because they, their origin was inside. Mm -hmm. And it's different from, <clears throat> from people whose origin was outside the country. But their behavior amounts to a colonization of the people who were in the country. So that malign trajectory simply continues. It's interesting to think about... Um 
I think that what what I'm what I'm getting from this also is we have to begin questioning what liberation really means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what freedom means in the context of Zimbabwe, but other other nations as well. And you said something very interesting about um, you're you're less interested in writing back to empire um, as opposed to thinking about who I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wondered about the place of that I mm-hmm. in this world. Or maybe in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? That is really one of the fundamental questions. This idea of identity, what is an individual? And all societies have been occupied with that question at some point in time. Some societies have decided there are there are no individuals. If um, one of the fellows that I am with at the Radcliffe Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, is a musician and takes a Taoist perspective on music um, and, and says that all sounds should be equal. <laughs> and so that all sounds are potentially music. You cannot separate music and other sounds. So that's one way of looking at the world. So if you apply that to human beings, all human beings are equal. You can apply it to all creatures. All creatures are equal. You know, so we shouldn't laugh at people who hug trees, for example. It's just the same as hugging a human being. <laughs> that would be the extreme version of that. Um, so now, in the culture that I come from, It's somewhere in between the two of the extreme individual and there being no difference anyway. And we do not understand individuality as something that is consonant, something I write about Mm -hmm. in this book also. Um, Because who you are is determined by your position in a nexus of social relationships, kinship relationships. And so at any given time, you are interacting with a different node in that network of relationships. So if I am a young girl and I am interacting with my young sister, I will behave differently and I will have a different identity to her. And people will expect me to behave differently. When I am talking to my elder male cousin, let's say older male cousin, I will behave differently again. And I might say things that are completely different and even contradictory to what I was saying to my sister, but it's okay because it's appropriate under the circumstances. Mm. I had a friend at university who said to me, Titi, I believe you have the duty to lie to your parents. (laughs) (laughs) Because your parents expect you to be somebody occupying this particular place Mm -hmm. in this particular kinship network. And if you are doing things outside that, you you should not let them know because you are hurting them. And it's just a completely different logic. Whether I agree with it or not is neither here nor there. It is the logic of the system and the way it works. 
And so identity is something that shifts. And um, I actually read a paper about this, about Zimbabweans today. They, they will be known by one name in one circle of friends, and then in another circle of friends, they'll have a different name. And then at work, they will have yet a third name. And it's perfectly okay. It, mm -hmm. it, it's normal. So this I is something that I think is elusive. And I don't, for myself, I don't know whether it is, it is what I am looking for. I think what I am looking for is what allows a person to behave in certain ways. And of course, that is partly identity, but it is also much more than identity. Mm. It's about group affiliation. Which groups am I affiliated to and why? What norms do these groups have? Because the way the freedom fighters behaved during the war and after the war and even today is so shocking that no Zimbabwean would have thought that another Zimbabwean could behave like that. Mm. And then we became shocked when we found out that this was possible. It makes me think about the title of this book, Black and Female. And in terms of identity, how, what, what, is, what does it mean to be black and female? What is black feminism? Um, and is it different from the feminism of white women? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, um, <laughs> Ma <laughs> Marza, would you like Sorry, me to talk <laughs> about the title? Oh, <laughs> there could be a trick question here. <laughs> There's no trick question. <laughs> you know, I do not see myself as black. I see myself as a person who has a certain concentration of melanin mm -hmm. in my body. And it is other people who have constructed me as black. And it goes back to another story, an anecdote that's in that book about uh, I was fostered as a young child by a white family. And they, were, they really did not see color and they never used the word black. Um, and uh, once I was out with my foster mother and a man said, oh, you've got a nice little piccaninny there or something. And I was actually happy because I was in this environment where I could sense that something was different. I knew that I was no longer with my biological family, so I wasn't quite sure what I was and no one had told me. <laughs> <laughs> So I was actually grateful to this man, you know. Ah, oh, I'm a piccaninny, how nice. <laughs> But when I left my foster mother to go on holiday to see my mother, my family, for a little while, I said to my mother, oh, mum, I know what I am. And she said, well, what are you? I said, oh, I'm a piccaninny. Oh, my goodness, she hit the roof. <laughs> And it was then that I began to understand racial dynamics. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, the interesting thing, I did not associate it with my skin. Very odd, because children don't see that kind of thing. Or of course, we see it, children do see it, but they do not see it as an essential thing. Um, and it was the same thing at school. 
uh, one of my friends thought that they could change my skin color by holding my hand. It was not seen as a fundamental of your identity. Mm-hmm. And that actually happened to me when I returned to Rhodesia and began to experience the kind of racism, the institutionalized racism that was in operation in, in Rhodesia. So I am conscious of being constructed as black, but I do not feel black. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do you completely, feel? Completely. I, I, reading that <laughs> section of your book, um, and you mentioned the quote by Ama. Amaata Aidu, who's really one of my cornerstone writers mm-hmm. as well. Um, and our, in her book, Our Sister Killjoy, mm-hmm. it's um, a story of this young young woman from Ghana that goes to Germany. And I think it, this experience of suddenly realizing like what you're talking about and what I also experienced, it's that African immigrant experience of suddenly realizing not only, oh wait, I'm not like these other people. And yeah, and so I don't know what it means, what it's supposed to feel like to to be black. Exactly. It, I don't um, know what that feels like, but I do know how people react to me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because of that. So it's their reaction that mm-hmm. I notice. Exactly. It's their imagination yes. of what being black should be. So yeah. it becomes very difficult. And I was thinking about that, uh, that moment that so many of us have of realizing suddenly that there are these boundaries that are, being, that are in place because of something that I had no idea about, that mm-hmm. I don't feel. I just have that experience, as you mm-hmm. say in the book. Mm-hmm. But I wondered about thinking of the title of this now. If, if there's ever a moment when you realized you were a girl. Yes. Yeah, can you talk about that? Definitely. This was at puberty (laughs) (laughs) when I was in Zimbabwe because, in fact, it was still Rhodesia at that time. Things changed. The way people related to me, even within my family, changed. The things I had been allowed to do, I was no longer allowed to do. And there were especially the division of labor between myself and my brother. That was one thing. Whereas when we had been younger, we did everything together. As we both got into puberty, he was shunted off into a kind of world of male privilege. (laughs) And I was shunted off into um, a world of uh, gender disparagement, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it, it, it used to drive me crazy. And that's when I realized that, uh, in fact, that struck me more than the blackness because I, I, could, I could understand that there was something there, but it was with the blackness, I never accepted that it was me. I accepted that it was something that people were imposing on me. And sometimes if the forces were so great, I would have to give in a little. But I always knew that it was something outside me. But now, when your body is changing, and you can see, you know, you had been like this before, you had been flat-chested before, but now you're not flat-chested anymore. Yeah. Um, it is you. 
And uh, so that that was a hard one. And then to correlate those physical changes with the way, the changes in the way that people in my family circle behaved. And then also, of course, um, the way that everybody else outside, and it's not just the men, that because you are coming into puberty that men will look at you differently, mm -hmm. but it's also women. Yeah. Competition begins. Uh, and so really the gender issue is the one that I felt constructed me more as less. And that is why I think my early work was about gender and race came later. I noticed that in, um, in nervous conditions, the, the, the different roles that women played in the family, um, the, the way that Tambu would look at her aunt, uh, Lucia, 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 and think about this, this rebellious, wayward aunt, and then her mother, who is in, in confined by so many different things. Um, and I, it was interesting to th think about that family structure where Tambu is, like you were saying, suddenly forced to do these chores, to do the work of women mm. while her brother goes out and, uh, you know, other siblings that are male go out and, and play, um, which is very familiar to the way that I was also raised. What was... What's, what I find so interesting, even listening to you now, Tsitsi, is that um, I, I considered the women in my family to have, in many ways, been rebellious against these things, against these constraints. And yet, mm -hmm. the daughter gets raised in that traditional way. Your mother was educated, correct? One of the first women to get a, a degree in Zimbabwe. And, and then it was, but even in the home, then you were still, it feels almost like it's impossible sometimes to break out of, the con, out of these constraints of patriarchy, mm -hmm. even when women have had the opportunity to break free. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, and this is why I wrote Nervous Conditions, in fact, And uh, the protagonist is a young girl, a rural girl from a very impoverished country, um, a part of the country called Tambuzai, or Tambu for short. And she has a brother. And so I use this family where her mother is really one of those women who has one of the most unbearable lives. She has an abusive husband who does not work. They live on a reserve because we had reserves for uh, melanin-embodied people in Rhodesia as well. And those, of course, were the lands that were not fertile, where virtually no rain fell. When I was older, I was able to, to think about things a bit more. And so driving to this place, you would drive through the farms. Mm. And so one day it began to rain but I could see it was raining just where the farms were because that's where the rain clouds were and you could see the column of, of um, grey. And it went all the way round <laughs> and missed out this area, this communal area where people had just been put. And in fact, my family had not originated from there. They had originated from another area in the Eastern Highlands that was very fertile. 
and that area had been reserved for tea plantations <laughs> and this kind of thing. And so this is where this young woman, uh, this girl, Tabutai, grows up. And I chose her because it enabled me to engage with different kinds of oppression. The, the oppression of poverty, the oppression of being female, uh, the uh, oppression of being a younger person in a family. Um, and also it allowed me to explore exactly what you were talking about, about how sometimes mothers raise their daughters in ways that reproduce what they had to fight against. Mm -hmm. And Tambudzai is an extreme example. Her mother discourages her at every single possible corner. But when, when you read it in the book, you understand why she's doing it. And so Tambudzai has to fight against the person who should actually be her role model. So I am really glad that we are seeing more texts that are questioning the black African mother mm -hmm. because there was a point, uh, there was a time in literature when this person was untouchable. You know, she was a superhero and she was nurturing the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm glad that um, we are allowing ourselves to see the vulnerability of that part mm -hmm. of ourselves also. I think it's very healthy and it, nobody should be asked to carry empire on their back. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. And you see the, the, the weight of it mm. in, in the generations of women, mm -hmm. uh, in, in families. Um, you mentioned... Can the, I just uh, talk yeah. about the education part of it? Absolutely. This is something um, I discussed at length when I was a student at UZ with a friend of mine who was a professor of sociology at the time. And um, we came to the conclusion that it was guilt, a kind of survivor's guilt, like I am the one who has managed to escape all of those confines of uh, being female. Um, First of all, I mustn't overdo it by raising my child like me because, you know, it's kind of like when I was in uh, Germany in the 1990s at the time that the war came down and um, neo-Nazism began. And I would go into the underground and I would look around and if there was another melanated person, I would probably not sit next to them. Because I would think, oh, then they will see us. You know, yeah. we, if there are two of us together, we will be more visible than if one is over there and another is over there. Until I became conscious of that behavior. And then I was able to change it to say, you know, this has got to stop. So I think this, this also happens uh, with mothers, that they do not want their children, their gold children to be like them. They're afraid for them. They know what they have suffered through pushing back against these norms. They don't want to see their daughters suffer like that. They don't want to be accused of bringing up their daughters to be rebellious and bad women. And they just don't want to, to have it in their faces the whole time. Yeah, And so there's often friction when the daughter insists on being rebellious as well. It's very yeah. true. Yeah. 
You mentioned earlier um, the driving uh, into the the territory where uh, the land where you were raised, um, and one of the th- the themes of this uh, celebration of 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 your work is also climate justice, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, how do climate? How does climate justice connect with Black feminism? Uh, do you know? Um, I missed that one part of your question, which was about whether Black feminism is different from yeah. White feminism. I'll give the short answer, which is yes. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I think I won't go any further than that now. <laughs> and, and also, my interest, as has been established, is in um, constructing myself yes. and not confronting anything that might be construed as mm-hmm. the other. So we don't have that kind of black feminism in Zimbabwe. Mm. And I talk about about that in the book as well. I've written about it because the state hijacked feminism by having a women's wing, which became like... They set this women's wing of Zanu PF up to be the ideal of femininity and the source of power, of female power in the country. And uh, feminism was generally um, a way of thinking that was promoted by NGOs. And so it was very easy to call it a Western thing and a foreign thing. And we have the women's group who are the real women of Zimbabwe, the women's wing. And... Like, people... um, some of these women in the women's wing who became very influential and powerful were the kind of women who would say, oh, yes, but when I go home, I still kneel down to my husband, etc., etc." Uh, and so this is the kind of version of femininity that is being propagated. Mm. And it's the kind of version of femininity that I feel I need to work against. Now, what then are the authorities in Zimbabwe doing um, in terms of the environment and which is related to climate change? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, one of the narratives that is out is that, well, it isn't our science that has caused climate change. (laughs) Yes, that is a narrative that's out. We are just the victims of their science that is causing all of these tropical storms in uh, Mozambique and Malawi and the eastern part of Zimbabwe. So that's so basically I understand that to say we're not going to even be concerned about mm. it. But then they did not dismantle the the system of the reserves where people lived. And people lived a very basic lifestyle on the reserves, more or less. It wasn't a modern lifestyle at all. Um, Their fuel was wood and it was subsistence farming. And so this has continued until this day. But sort of around election time, the ZANU-PF organization has to have an idea that will capture the imagination 
of this group of people, which is about 67% of the population. So it's a lot. And they will come up with ideas like, oh, now we have an electricity shortage because they haven't maintained the dams, etc., etc. But never mind about that. We now have the shortage. We have to deal with it. Um, how are we going to deal with it? You don't have bread. You don't have electricity with which you can bake the bread. So we're going to have mud ovens. Mm. This was actually a thing. I think about three years ago. So there was this whole movement to start building mud clay ovens and to chop down trees <laughs> with which to fire these ovens. And I think people baked bread for a few months. And, you know, there, was all, there were all these pictures of these loaves of bread that were coming out of these clay ovens. <laughs> so that was one thing that uh, Zanupiev did. And one of the members of parliament actually scolded the youth who are not employed. We, some people say we have an unemployment rate of about 95%. And so he was scolding the youth for being unemployed and said, well, can't you do things? Can't you go and sell firewood or something like that? Which again means going out into the woodlands willy-nilly and cutting down trees. So I don't really think that the environment and climate change are things that are part of the national discourse in Zimbabwe at the moment. The other thing is mining. Yeah. That is more or less one of the only industries that is functioning. Mm -hmm. And it is really interesting that the industry that is functioning is an industry where it is exceedingly easy to remove the raw materials from the country. <laughs> and the effects on people's habitats where people actually live is just, it's unspeakable. You know, whether they are mining diamonds, whether it's platinum, whether it's lithium, whether it's marble, they're quarrying marble, um, the environment is suffering, and nobody is thinking about sustainable mining. Hmm. And so one of the other things, uh, the, these ideas that have to be had periodically to capture people's uh, imagination, is what they call artisanal mining. And this is essentially a kind of gold panning, either in rivers, uh, shallow areas, or in disused mines that have been closed down. So these artisanal miners who are completely impoverished go mm -hmm. down and they practice, they do this very dangerous work. You even have children who don't go to school because they spend their time panning for gold. And these mines are so dangerous. I mean, they're constantly collapsing. And you, will re you might recall that I mentioned this, um, this uh, expose by Al Jazeera. The middlemen then buy the gold from these people. So they lose out either mm. way. And then it gets smuggled out. So really, the environment is not something that we are talking about much in Zimbabwe. Um, we did ha have Wangari Matai in Kenya, mm -hmm. 
But with her death, really nobody seems to be commemorating what she has done or keeping up the movement. And I think one of the problems is that Africa is seen as a source of, of um, rare minerals. And so how can you talk about the environment when you actually want to exploit this earth mm -hmm. in, in order to get your minerals? Yeah. So I don't know what is, what is necessary to build up a kind of real environmentalist mm -hmm. movement on the continent. And then, of course, people are just concerned with the next meal. Yeah. Then I mean, it, yeah. that is the, that becomes the, in some ways it's almost a luxury to be able to think about the environment. Exactly. So this is implicit in this is what they did. Uh, don't know whether I want to use the word developing their country, but let us say changing their country. <laughs> Uh, through the exploit, through the um, proceeds of empire, and the results of it are what we are beginning to see now. It might have looked like progress at one point, but we are seeing that it might not have been the kind of progress that we thought it was. So let them deal with it. We have our own problems. I think there is a, a hint of that idea. Because everything actually that happens in most of our countries, I think, is a reaction to that colonial and imperial past. I think we have not really managed to decolonize our minds, as Ngugi says we must, mm -hmm. you know, because we are still reacting, always reacting to the global West. I'm thinking now, Tsitsi, of, of this image, whenever, whenever I think about your work, the image that first comes to mind is um, you in 2020. And I believe we were still in the mayhem of the Booker things, uh, events. And you're on a road in Zimbabwe holding up a sign with a friend of yours, Julia Barnes. Julie Barnes. Julie yes. Barnes. Um, and then you were arrested for that protest um, and now, as of just two days ago, mm. the charges were dropped. Is that correct? I, I was acquitted. acquitted. I was acquitted, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what was going through your mind that day when you were on that road? Uh, on that road? Uh, that, that was a, a day that is really seared into my very being because we were meant to have a huge nationwide demonstration on the 31st of July. Opposition parties had been talking this up on social media and everybody was saying, yes, we're going out. This time we're going to do it. And I think people really thought they were going to do it. Um, and then... I think that the authorities realized that there was a threat, that people might actually go out en masse. And so they issued a decree, oh. simply a decree, banning that protest. Now, the Constitution of Zimbabwe does confer the right to protest peacefully. And so I was conflicted because I had also been 
one of the people who was talking for the demonstration. And then I thought, what happens if I have been so vociferous and now I start cowering in my house? Will I be able to look at myself in mm. the mirror? You know, so that's my test. Will I like what I see when I look in the mirror? So I thought, I, I probably won't like what I see. <laughs> so I'd better go. I had asked on social media for women to come and join me because we had said that nobody should go on their own because if you disappear, there, there's no witness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's easier to... to kidnap one person than it is to kidnap two or more and so Julie who I had worked with through my film work had agreed to come with me and so we decided we were going to go meanwhile journalists had been calling me up Titi you said on social media you're going to demonstrate where are you going to demonstrate we want to be there and it was so awful some young women called me up and said look we've even got money uh, to do a little portrait of you doing this and I knew how desperate they were they had to get this footage mm. but I couldn't tell them yes come and film me <laughs> because um, that would look as though I was putting on a performance mm -hmm. for the international community. So I felt very sad and um, I couldn't tell them. And then they asked me where I lived and so I couldn't lie and I, could, I just couldn't say, I'm not going to tell you where <laughs> I live. So I told them. So we had agreed to meet at the shopping centre, which is halfway between where I live and Julie does, and it's the biggest one closest to my area. So Julie and I meet, we start walking down the road with our posters. This brightly coloured minivan parks and about half a dozen journalists spill out of this <laughs> minivan. <laughs> and I was so annoyed. I thought, you know, this is really going to get me into trouble now. <laughs> so we started walking and we didn't want to talk to them, but journalists are journalists. You know, they don't mind you being silent they'll just ask you the same yeah. question again you know like 10 <laughs> times until you think I have to answer this question just to keep them quiet and we're walking down the road so eventually we did we did speak to them and I was so unhappy about all that then there were not many people on the road in fact when I came out of the house I, my husband drove me because I said please be there and please take um please film whatever mm. happens um, just in case yeah. anything does happen. So he was on the other side of the road. So Julie and I decided that we were going to stop at a crossroads because we thought then people coming in all directions would see us. And we did that. Then a car drove up and this guy jumps out and he comes up to me and starts filming my posters and kind of mocking me. Uh, you people in this particular neighborhood are demonstrating, are you? So I didn't say anything to him. And he went away. And a quarter of an hour later, I see this riot vehicle coming down the road from the police station towards town. <coughs> and I saw it out of the corner of my eye. And I must admit, my first thought was, I hope other people have gathered in town. And I hope this vehicle is going to them <laughs> and not to us. And then it stopped at the traffic lights and I'm hoping and then I see that it's indicating to turn and oh. uh, at that moment I thought, okay, this is it. 
So we were ordered into the van. But, um, you know, we had told ourselves on social media that we had to put the page of the Constitution, the paragraph, that gave us the right to demonstrate on our cell phones and show this to the police (laughs) when they came for you. You know, and I took one look at this guy and I thought, uh, there's no point. (laughs) No point in showing him that. So when he said, get into the vehicle, I said, okay. (laughs) And got into the vehicle. My God. So, um, but I was glad because um, living a life of fear and intimidation is not a life. And it, it is important to show that the individual is also responsible for what happens at the social level. Mm. A citizen agency is really one of... In fact, I think it's the thing that drives me to get people to understand that they have power. They have individual power, but that individual power is meant to be to be summed with the individual power of other people mm. so it can actually be effective. That's, I mean, look at political parties. They are summing the power of individuals in order to, to effect things so citizens can do the same. Thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I know that we are running out of time. Um, I just... I'd like to close this out uh, by asking you, Tsitsi, um, if there is one thing that you would like to tell people in the audience, maybe the young women here, um, about, about this work, about this book, something that you would like them to get out of this. Could you share that? Yes, uh, there is something that I would like young women or anybody in the audience to get out of this book. And this is that everybody has a right to represent themselves as they are. You know, when we talk about representation, especially in our part of the world, it's political representation. And we're told the way you are representing yourselves politically is wrong. And nobody talks about how we come to this wrong politics. It is because we are not allowed to represent who we are to each other. We have the liberation struggle that I mentioned earlier where terrible things happened. I think we have maybe two texts that deal with those terrible things. But in the Constitution of Zimbabwe that children learn, they are one of the, I think it's in the preamble, one of the founding principles is respect for the liberation struggle. Mm. So we are not representing all that trauma and harm. And what I am trying to say is that it is important that we do that and that we do it in the first instance for ourselves, but once we have done it for ourselves, it is there for everybody Mm. and it is then possible to know what you are as a human being and why and to stand your ground when that is challenged. So that is something that's very important to me. So I was really delighted to meet our young poet uh, (laughs) who is doing precisely that. And that's why I think the arts are so important 
You know, if you think of political representation, which is what they're talking about at the level of the UN, etc., um, it's a handful of men, and in our countries, generally old men who can be invited to wonderful hotels. Mm-hmm. You know, in Beijing or in London or in Oslo, and can be told things, and they can be controlled very easily. Mm-hmm. But if we could all represent ourselves to each other and have conversations about that, the ideas that we have of ourselves, the ideas that we have of the world, the ideas that we have of the world we want. Would be something that is in the ether, and would not be controllable. So I sometimes think that there's a reason why、um, that kind of representation in narrative, in、uh, symbolic form, is not encouraged on the continent up until today. You know, we know that when enslavers came to the continent, they would not allow people to practice their culture, to sing their songs, to play their musical instruments. They would mix up different people、uh, from different language groups, so they could not practice their language. And again, it was it was it was in fact um, uh, um, a kind of cultural genocide, and I think that it is perpetuated. And so then, I like to look at the ways in which we are encouraged to represent ourselves on the continent, and money will flow from this part of the world, will flow into what they call development projects, and these development projects are telling you that you have a problem.、Mm-hmm. You know, you have HIV. You don't have human rights.、Mm-hmm. You have fistula amongst young girls because you practice、uh, female genital mutilation or early child or child、mm-hmm. marriage, you know, and it's always negative. And there is no person in the world who actually just decides naturally that I want to represent myself negatively. So that again is one of these external constructions、yeah. that's coming. You say you want an aspirational story, where people can look and think, "Oh my goodness, yes, I could do that too."、Um, there's no support for that kind of story. If you look at the transatlantic stories, it's slavery. Yeah, you know that's what people want to hear about. Oh yes, we did enslave you. How terrible of us! We are so awful. <laughs> you know this kind of thing. So this is something that has to change.、Um, it's a question of equality. It's a question of equality of voice. It's it's a question of、uh, symbolic equality. So now I'm back to that Taoist philosophy about people having equal、um, equal worth. So I would like to say to the young women, don't doubt your voice. Your your voice is given to you for a reason. So whether you are in the arts or somewhere else, the way you use your voice is your art, and you are meant to use it so that the other person can experience it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so so much to Titi Dangaremba and Masa Magister. You can find Dangaremba's books in the bookshop outside, 
and she has kindly agreed to sign a few copies. You could also meet Titi again tomorrow at 8pm when she will be in conversation with South African environmental and indigenous activist Nole Mutuba and Baridis Juelstotter from Amnesty about activism and about the situation on the ground in Zimbabwe and in South Africa. So welcome back for that and please join me in one last round of applause for Titi Dangaremba and Masa Megita. been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.